Hello, this is Way. And this is Ariel. And this is Everybody's, Everybody's Basic. Basic. This is a podcast about the intersection of dating, entertainment, and race. I am an arts and culture writer for the Houston Chronicle. And I am a um, arts maven living in Houston, Texas. You're still an arts maven. Yes. <laughs> that's still. Who I mean, you that's are. the only thing that's you know. I'm consistently a creative. So it's been like a hot minute since we podcasted. Mm-hmm. Like a month, maybe yeah. a little bit more than a month. So there's a lot to catch up on. We've we have been this, busy. We've been busy. Uh, And we're going to catch you all up on our busyness. And there's a couple of segments that we want to do right away, right? So so you had an interesting Facebook post that you're going to read. I'll read an interesting Facebook post. And then we will talk uh, about our two kind of main subjects. Yeah. Ham, well, we're, we will talk about me. I Well, congratulations to me. I quit my job. You quit your job. We'll talk about it. We'll talk yes. about what that process was like. And then Way and I went to see Hamilton on Wednesday of last week. So we will talk about this small indie theater production. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I don't know why I was just like obsessed with this Facebook post you did. And so... I think it's really cool to read internet things out loud and bring them into existence. Can you like read this Facebook post? Yes, I'll read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was posted like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it okay. was. Yeah, April 19th. So I said, and you know, it's just me being in my head. People talk about what it's like to have resting bitch face, but no one talks about the struggle of resting friendly face. <laughs> it's hard out here for us. People smile and stare at you for awkwardly long periods of time. Everyone always asks you for directions. People keep trying to introduce themselves to you at networking receptions, but you're really only there for the free mini crab cakes. Old ladies want want to help you to help them pick out a good bunch of ripe strawberries at the grocery store because you remind her of her granddaughter. Can I live? (laughs) (laughs) That is such a weird, interesting problem, Ariel. (laughs) I mean... So you just get caught, called people are like, frown, baby, frown. It's smiling <laughs> so much. No, I, well, first of all, one thing that I love and kind of enjoy about Facebook is that a lot. I have a lot of anxiety around writing. Um, when people give you really strict parameters and just length, with Facebook, I'm able to um, kind of take what's happening in my internal dialogue and then put it out there and then have people who are my friends that I kind of self-select respond um, and so there's, it's oftentimes that I'll just kind of be in my head and then it will kind of manifest in this way when it comes, I guess just being a person, I'm, it's not that I'm not friendly, but do you really I'm, look like you're smiling. Is that a- an actual thing? I don't, I think it's more because I'm, I'm a round, soft looking person. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, sure. I think it's that I have a softness mm-hmm. in my appearance. Yeah. And when I do smile, maybe it's a little bright. <laughs> it's so weird that like who we are, the way we think about ourselves is very internal. But then a lot of people, they just take your appearance and they're like, oh, you look so sad or, you know, whatever, whatever. Right. I think I used to hunch a lot. And whenever I would tell people things, it would be like, oh, but you don't sound so sure about that. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm telling you the truth. I went to Wendy's and ate a cheeseburger. They're like, are you lying? It, because I'm like hunching or crossing my right. arms or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like. 
the outside world kind of interprets us in a way that is really confusing for us because we don't we don't see like a mirror of ourselves all the time. Right. I um and also I think it's really important to be conscious of how you appear or how you perform and use it. <laughs> I would say that I use my perceived friendliness or perceived softness um often just to disarm people. Hmm. Um because people aren't really threatened because I look like, you know, like a black Mrs. Claus sometimes. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> that's so cute. So, yeah, like I'm, you know, chubby and cute. And so it I can go into a room and kind of smile really brightly and disarm people and people will easily tell me mm-hmm. um their thoughts, their ideas, it helps people feel safe. Um I'm just going to warn our <laughs> listeners out there that those kind of people, the kind of unassuming people, they they like, I think, this is my experience, they tend to be the smartest people in the room, and they're thinking, they're cutting things inside their brain. So you have to watch out for those kind of people. Be nice to them. Don't roll over them. Um, give them your crab cakes or whatever. <laughs> I mean... You know, I I enjoy people's assumptions because it means that I get to play with them. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? Next time I see you and you're smiling, I'll be like, I'll just assume that you're really depressed. Okay. And <laughs> naturally, give you some uh, benefit of the doubt. Okay. Um, okay. I, I guess I'll read mine now. Yes. It's not. I mean, I don't think it got nearly as many likes. I can't. I do wait want to talk about this. To fruit okay. ninja this shit. Okay. So I. So I have. I. I okay. I propose Bad Millennial Monday, in which we binge on all the problematic pop culture we're afraid to otherwise. Let's jump right into Hardman with this itinerary. Okay, so numbered list. Number one, Cosby Show reruns. Number two, September by Taylor Swift. Number three, Manhattan by Woody Allen. Number four, pick one, White Chicks, 16 Candles, or Revenge of the Nerds. And number five, Final Boss Battle. She's all that. I'll supply the Starbucks and Chick-fil-A who's in. So... I feel like you put a lot of things in there that people like to kind of mask how annoying and terrible Taylor Swift is. I feel like out so of all So you think Taylor things, Swift is the one that's like... Yes. Wow. Because she's all that. It's a fucking classic. Okay, fine. And I don't know. White Chicks, I won't call it a classic, but you know, it's something. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's great. It's fucking terrible. It's like a guilty pleasure. Um... The Cosby Show is problematic, but we cannot divorce what it meant for the black community in its time or for certain communities in its time. Okay. Taylor Swift of all of that shit is fucking garbage. It's, I think, I think it's embarrassing for a different reason, right? So I think you're parsing, you're kind of like parsing yes. the d- different things in the list. Like Cosby Show is really good art made by a bad person. That's not the issue with Taylor Swift. It's just like, really bland and like uninteresting and it's like embarrassing for me to consume it the same way it's embarrassing for me to uh like i like you can talk to my roommate like i I will sing frozen hairspray and like justin bieber's baby um uh, in the shower and this is these are like the kinds of music i consume like in private and i feel like especially millennials we are really interested and kind of overly obsessed with consuming music as like a public kind of performance hello, um, as a public performance um, rather than like a private kind of consumption, like eating ice cream by yourself or something like that. And Taylor Swift is my ice cream. September is, man, I don't even, I'm like afraid to even talk about how much I've been like jamming out on September. 
I I don't know. I have to acknowledge I feel a sense of I do I am one of those elitists who could be very dismissive about <laughs> people's consumptions of things. Right. Um and I think that just growing up I was cultivated to be that way. My father was like, We're not watching this stupid basic ass movie. We're going to a Stanley Clark concert. Stanley right. Clark, for those of you who don't know, is an exceptional bassist mm-hmm. and musician. And so he had this kind of he he imparted that elitism onto me. Yeah. Um. So I don't. I don't know. I mean, you always criticize me when it comes to food, but I when when it comes to kind of music and also film, I'm. I don't enjoy this indulgence in mediocre shit. Yeah, I love my pop culture equivalent of you know Fritos or whatever. Like I love my junk food. I love it. Sometimes, like, really, really misogynistic stand-up comedy, I just laugh. Like, it's just so, it's such a release, you know? There's, like, this tightness to performing millennial wokeness mm-hmm. that, in private, with without any of your judgmental friends, <laughs> I'm just kidding, <laughs> like, without anyone else, you get to um, kind of... I don't know, kind of let the road fall down a little bit. Especially as, like, a public, like, an arts critic. Like, I publicly have to, like, say what I think about art. And it's just, like, it can be really tiring sometimes. I understand how that could be tiring. I I think what's also important is embracing the complexity of your own identity. And saying, hey, I love, you know, because you like both high... God. Definitive version <laughs> with the banjos and the. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I just, ta- I, I, you know, I this have is my a podcast, own... but but she is like rolling. Your eyes are like in the back of your head. I can't stand no Taylor Swift, y'all. Like I cannot. And she, and for this song, she's. I feel like she's baiting black people. She's baiting social media because she knows that you know Earth, Wind, and Fire is just kind of the seminary band of blackness and like oh visually the size of the band like it just is and i feel like she's baiting us and that's why i found it insulting but you know you're right you're right and i am wrong objectively but i still do things in you know what i mean it's like right even though you are so right that doesn't change like like me liking Doritos. Right. So, like and and what I'm, I'm saying like, it's is it's like a bad woke, bad wokeness. I'm yeah. what I'm saying is don't perform wokeness because that's an insult to wokeness. Be honest and be in, and embrace both the highs and the lows of your own taste because I fucking do. What, what, what do, do you have any kind of like Taylor Swift equivalent? There is not a movie that was made with DMX as the lead character that I have not seen. I love every <laughs> single fucking one of them. Okay? <laughs> awesome belly is one of my favorite movies and half that movie is in slow motion like it is terrible but i love it and try me like try me on it (laughs) i love like um so try try speaking of tests that we've faced recently in our mm -hmm. personal lives boom segue Oh yeah, I yeah. We, we we're, we're talking about uh, kind of like a personal milestone that means something to you when it comes to having a full time job and quitting it. So 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 fill us in on what's what's going on here. Oh yeah, so I quit my job. <laughs> Woo! 
it was something it was something that was coming i knew it was coming but there was this kind of event that happened um that was like okay this is time it's time now to do this um basically my manager and i have always had difficulty getting along and something that i've experienced as you know young millennial you're smart you're also black um trying to exist in the workspace it can just be difficult i feel i feel that sometimes just my presence threatens people in an office um and so i sent an internal email saying hey we have this outside fundraiser whatever she was a Long story short, she was upset and she went to human resources and wrote me up for not attending a happy hour and sending an internal email to all staff. The same communications mechanism that, you know, we say, hey, there are bunk cakes in the front. Come and get them. Um, is, and this, she, is this a diverse newsroom? Uh, no. Newsroom, I'll, so I'll out of this. 50 employees, um, none of the development or like leadership positions are of color. All of those people are white and only two, two teachers are no, an assistant teacher and a teacher are black. I am the only black person in administrative or development period. Um, how does that, how does that affect your experience? Oh, I'm, I was bred to understand that the working environments that I exist in are going to be war zones for me. Wow. Okay. Um, and that I have to, I cannot divulge things about my personal life. You know, I feel like white women or white, I mean, I work primarily with white women because I work in nonprofits and I work in the arts, feel a sense of safety to talk about their personal lives and talk about their lives that I just, as a black person, I do not. Hmm. Um, because I believe that that information will often be weaponized against me. Especially having this lady bring me into human resources on sending an internal email and not coming to a happy hour. In that regard, people are looking for ways to push you out of that space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what's shitty about it is that it compromises black people's ability to rise and have any sort of socioeconomic advantages because they are pushed out of workspaces. Granted, I knew that I was going to leave anyway. And I think when I walked into that office after she had said that she was going to push me, put me on a probationary period and I quit, I think that lady was shocked. Hmm. I think she thought that I was too poor, too black, um, and I did not believe in myself enough to be able to say, hey, I don't have to deal with this bullshit. Yeah. And I'm fucking leaving. Um, and... After I quit, I gave my notice. They were like, yes. Um, and then by the end of the day, I had a transitional meeting and they, and I went back to come up to my computer and my computer had locked me out. Mm -hmm. And I go up to my manager and I say, Mary, is there a reason why my computer is locked? She said, yes, today is your last day. Right, right. Um, and they wrote me a check and escorted me out. So, so you felt like quitting was the right choice. Like talk me through like deciding to quit. I just, I feel like I went to a school, I think you might have done too, like, went, went to school where there's a lot, lot of high achievers, mm -hmm. and I I was just, like, bred to think that, like, having some kind of, like, superficial careerist mentality is, like, very important, mm -hmm. that I need to have, like, made it or have some kind of, like, status, uh, Facebook status mm -hmm. even, you know, hey, I just got this job, I got this yeah. fancy job or whatever, 
um, you know, certainly like motivated me like working for the Houston Chronicle because I felt like it would be fancy to tell other people. Mm -hmm. So can you talk, talk to me about like that psychological aspect of quitting? Oh no. I mean, that was definitely there for me or has been there. I mean, I didn't, you know, we, you and I, we, we go to top universities for a reason. Brandeis, I went to Howard, Carnegie Mellon. You want to have those names because those names give you leverage. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not something it's definitely something that is a part of me wanting prestige. Like having a good job is important to you. Right. However, I... And I don't have a job. Right. And that's awesome. I had a father who would often have these high-paying, prestigious, you know, directors, executive position roles. And he would, you know, just as a function, again, black, threatening, be pushed out of them very often. Budget cuts, black person, first to go. Yeah. And he kind of taught me that your identity as a human being has to rest in something that is bigger or better than your job because it's mm-hmm. too it's too delicate and it's too fragile of a condition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And resting your identity in a job where you can have an irrational manager or you can have people who just don't really want you in the space and they can, you know, use an internal email to push you out of that role. Mm-hmm. Like you, you cannot build your self-esteem on that. It's building your house on sand and not on rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, look, I knew that I wanted to move home anyway. I knew that I wanted to make these transitions. I'm a smart bitch. I know that I am. Yeah. If I have prestige, trust me, I can find it. Right. I can get it again. I don't have to deal with this bullshit. I really don't. I, I mean, it sounds really brave. Um, I know we talked with uh, Josh Innocencio um, about, like, my dad quitting mm-hmm. his job, and I felt like that was a really brave thing to do, too, you know? I mean, I just, don't you feel like quitting a job is, like, so much harder than accepting a job? Accepting a job, you just say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, most people would just say yes to a job. Oh, you want to give me money and have, give me this title? Great. But to kind of un- your, unleash yourself into like this chasm of uncertainty, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I'm putting it like this. this I mean, not but but like that. That's how so- sometimes I like. I think falsely think of what quitting is, and yet I think to me, I'm not saying I'm going to quit my job, but I think to me, knowing that that is always an option, if it's too toxic at my workplace or I just feel like I could be a full human being in a different capacity. Um, I, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm trying to like, I think I am inspired by what you're doing. And I, I want to, no. like I want to take in that lesson of like no. choosing your personal strength and not letting other people control you. No, so. I mean, shit gets real. It's definitely not all like smelling roses. Like mm-hmm. it sucks not to have income. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you have to think of your life as a journey. Yeah. And that in the scope of that journey, you will have great successes. You will have prestige. And some of those journeys are lows or some of those journeys require you to say, hey, my values are being compromised. What values am I going to prioritize in this situation? Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look at great people or people that we perceive as great, 
they have moments where they were fired or, you know, they mm-hmm. left or they resigned or they decided to do their own thing. And it, it was kind of in that nadir period that they um, built themselves. And I think that we have to be more accepting of a path that makes us a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Part of me just wants to please my bosses or my parents or people who have authority over me. Mm-hmm. It just makes my life a lot easier to be a pleaser, an assimilator, someone who doesn't cause any trouble. Um, I don't know. How do you kind of have that moment where you kind of stand firm and say, this is who I am. This is my life. I have agency over my life. I'm going to take control of my life. Um, I just feel like a lot of people will be in your position for 20 years. And I think a lot of people are just kind of like mildly dissatisfied with their adult lives. They kind of accept it. And I think a lot, I think maybe we all just have to be mildly dissatisfied um, or extremely dissatisfied. Um, I just, I just don't know what, what it takes to to say, okay, I'm going to do something slightly drastic or slightly dramatic or slightly um, do something that brings a little bit uh, uncertainty in my life. I mean, I don't want to take it, drain it, any of the romanticism from, you know, when I, when I, I had already made intentions to quit that job. I knew that it was incongruent. I knew that it wasn't, you know, something that was very funny is that when I took that job, because, you know, I'm an arts person. That is, that is my identity. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. I took that job and I was like, uh, this isn't really me. And something that you said, you would call it the center for kids who can't read good. And it was Mm -hmm. kind of a dick thing to do, but it, it was right. Like it was, I, I felt that job was so stupid and anti my identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I already had intentions to leave, mm-hmm. but I used that moment to say, okay, I don't necessarily, I had been saving money. I knew that I was going to tr- maybe move, make it another transition. Um, but I used that moment to say, okay, the time is now and you won't disrespect me. You raggedy racist bitch. How do you explain this to people like your friends? Because I I feel like I will see certain friends do something that other people don't understand. This might not be specific to your situation where, um, like, I remember uh, my last girlfriend, she had a good friend uh, quit her corporate job and Mm -hmm. just live on a farm in New Zealand for a year. Mm -hmm. And all of her friends were like, what is she doing? She's really working out some stuff, but she really needs to stop wasting her time with her farming stuff, with her hippie stuff, and just like, you know, get on with her career. And now I almost think about this every day of living on a farm in in New Zealand for for a year. And I think people will judge me. People are like, oh, you're being naive. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're being idealistic. You're being selfish. Or, oh, this is not a real thing that you really want to do. This is an immature thing that you're trying to figure out. I don't know. I just feel like that tends to be the stance people take towards any non-careerist kind of uh, mode of functioning. I don't know. Every, I mean, and maybe it's a testament to my friends, but all of my friends have been extremely supportive of me. Yeah. Um, I think the job of a friend is to, in some regards, be intuitive and say, hey, how is my friend really feeling? 
and do that work to understand what another human being is really feeling, what values are really at play. And if your friends are that dismissive of you, what it's saying is that they're not doing the work to understand what values that you're leveraging here. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I, it's not Houston Chronicle, but the the first job that I got, I was a little bit fancy. I remember the first couple of months were really tough for me. And then mm-hmm. my friends, they would call me like, oh my God, you're at this big newspaper. You finally made it. We never knew if you're going to make it in journalism. You know, you're probably going to burn out and kind mm-hmm. of not find a full-time job, but you did it. You did it. And I'm like, no, I'm miserable. Like, this is not like the thing that I portray. Like I will post awards and like jobs that I get on mm-hmm. Facebook. That is about 3% of my life. Right. You know, I don't speak it out loud on social media that the rest of it that isn't romantic i don't know maybe i should just post on social media like hey i'm just lying alone in bed waiting for the next day to start you know i mean i'm not encouraging all 22 year olds to quit every time they feel uncomfortable right that's not what i'm saying i'm right I have, trust me, I have endurance. And before I left that job, I oversaw the production of the annual report. I oversaw a gala program that, you know, was lauded by our um, president of our board of directors. I, I saw that organization through a successful art festival that, you know, I did the press and promoted. Like there were things, there was experience that I took and it was all about me. It wasn't about me doing a great job for that workplace. It was about me getting what the fuck I needed to get out of that position. I believe in endurance and I believe if there is something that you have to learn in a, in a space, you need to sit down and learn. But when people are are doing sly, sneaky stuff to push you out of a space right. and you are already kind of in meditation and speaking to yourself um, and saying, hey, it's time to go. You need to take that message from the universe. So how do you know it's that situation versus I just don't feel like doing work, I don't have discipline, and I'm a little bit emotionally bruised from something that really is just about me being lazy. I need to just own up to my mistakes and I need to just grit my teeth and kind of, you know, bear through it. Cause I feel like I have moments like that too. Um, you, you know, like no, knowing when to quit. Right. How do you decide? No. How do you decide when to quit? I think, I don't know. Cause don't there are people who quit too soon. Yeah. And there are people who should have quit a long time ago. Right. And I'm also talking about relationships, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's a whole nother Lord in heaven. Um, I, and I don't have, I'm not going to pretend to have those answers. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend to be a part of someone's internal dialogue or spiritual journey um, to be able to say, hey, this is when you quit. I know that, you know, I got into a space where I was deep in meditation and also in prayer and also talking to people that really know me and giving me little glimpses. I don't know. I feel like there are mirrors all around us. Like our friends can see, Hey, you're exhausted mm-hmm. or Hey, mm-hmm. you know, I know. I remember telling a fr- I hadn't seen a friend in a while. And then I saw her again. And she was like, you're not working in the art. That's not really you. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So it was. It that was, was a friend telling you something true, right? Rather than a friend judging you right. and not understanding what you're doing, because right. you could have interpreted it differently, right? She, I mean, she knew me, and she was like, "You are an arts person. Like, mm-hmm. we all know that." And so, I this can't be making you happy. Hmm. And you know, it's it's trusting trusting your friends who you really believe love you and are kind of vessels for mm-hmm. messages. But all, and then trusting would, would, yourself at the same Would you have time. taken the job if it was, if it was about like $10,000 less salary? No, absolutely not. Yeah. So maybe money's part of it. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. I mean, you know. <laughs> um, I got great experience out of that job though. I won't, I won't say that that job was a waste of my time because I did projects that, you know, led projects that were just nowhere near what a lot of arts organizations are capable of doing because they don't have the capacity. It was not a waste of time, but it was definitely time to go. Wow. That's awesome. I'm glad you're not like curled up. I mean the the day before the, of the kitchen. The day before I did it, like I wanted to kind of be present cuz we had like this super amazing event that we were gonna do yeah we saw a musical about seeing a situation and a system that was kind of not allowing mm-hmm. young people to thrive and how those people decided to do something about it yes and quit <laughs> the british quit, government quit another great segue <laughs> alexander hamilton first of all can i just say like when Wei asked me to, first of all, Wei was like at my house and he had dinner and we got like super drunk on wine and like passed out. And he comes into my room after waking up randomly and goes, hey, do you want to go see Hamilton? And I'm like in bed at this point, hung like drunk. And I'm like, really like you should take someone else because I'm not like a I, Hamilton I mean, man. and I'm like, I will. It's like, look, <laughs> If someone asks you to, do you want to go see Hamilton? You instantly say yes, or or, or you don't go. Like I could, like <laughs> I was like, I'm not gonna let you. You can be indecisive. Okay, I'll, uh, there's about ten other people that I'm gonna talk to. No, he made me, but I felt because I was, you know, I of course I wanted to go, but I didn't want to take that opportunity what'd from you, someone else. What do you think about it? I I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was genius. Um. At first, I had a lot of anxiety around people of color performing for white people, kind of hip hop and dance and things. I don't know. You know, when when people, when black people. You're making, the fact that the Hobby Center was filled so with like old white. white people. Yeah. And, you know, white people just laud Hamilton. You yeah. know, they just love it. And yeah. it's like, oh, it's so hip hop. It's so current. It's so interesting. Yeah. And naturally, my inclination is not to trust it. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's like, well, I, I assume that it's well-packaged work that can be consumed by whiteness. And therefore, it's not authentic. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I just I don't I don't know if that applies to Hamilton. It I, does. I think it, Hamilton is real. As it doesn't. Fuck. It. But that was and, my anxiety. Yeah. And then I was. I mean. Yeah, but what was the reality? The reality was that the genius is undeniable. It. It's like this. 
like I, I think everyone we can just go through kind of like the five right. achievements, right? right. There is a the lyricism of there's like Shakespeare lyrics plus like references to Biggie Smalls and like Mob Deep and stuff. You know, right. like I'm only 19, but my mind is old or something like yeah. that. Um, uh, the ten, the uh, the ten new commandments, like the ten crack commandments, right? Um, and and so yeah, we all talk about like the hip hopness of it right. being like completely mind blowing. There's also the casting of it, casting people of color to play Thomas Jefferson, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, think about that to cast who was it, David Diggs, and mm-hmm. in this case it was someone else who was really great mm-hmm. to play Thomas Jefferson, who oh, we all he was know the best. was, he was great. you know a Southern aristocrat who was uh, a pro slavery. You know, he like it's just to kind of reclaim who that person was, right? And who Alexander Hamilton was, and all these old white folk was is um, is is not what white people say is like post racial colorblindness, mm-hmm. right? I don't like that. I don't like right. we're all humans, and race doesn't matter. So you can just cast people whoever. Right. It's specifically a story about oppressed people who rise up, right? And that's why people are cast with. Uh, that's why the musicals cast with brown people and people can't see that parallel between the american revolution founding fathers and i mean angela angela davis i say like said it the most poignantly i I can't remember where and when she was making the speech but she was like the whole american experiment is based off of upsetting inequitable systems yeah how dare you be upset about civil rights because it is in the vein of what is the American experiment. And so it's so interesting that Hamilton takes that and turns it on its head, but it kind of just sucks that, you know, we have to do that in order to regurgitate to whiteness and white supremacy that, Hey, like, you know, this is us protesting or asking to change what America is, is by and large American. Yeah. I think one of the biggest um, things that makes Hamilton important it, is that it's become so big in the public consciousness that it, it is like an answer to a lot of questions that we have. Mm-hmm. So if you have a question like, is Colin Kaepernick deeply patriotic or deeply unpatriotic? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What would the musical Hamilton say about that? Or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Is 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 um kind of protesting against police or american big american institutions right is that anti-american or is that pro-american right um and and you know what does the story of this guy who comes from the caribbean right bastard orphan son of uh you know guy who comes not even from this country isn't a member of this british colony system and just says oh no 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 this is what it means to be american and I don't interpret Americanness as one of obedience and loyalty, but of rebelling for your humanity. So whenever you see in the news or you see in the arts or you see in a workplace someone trying to fight for who they are, what does something like what does something what does Hamilton say about that? Um I mean Prior to going to the musical, we talked about these, our own kind of iterations of what patriotism is. Um, And of course, you you wrote a wonderful um, 
review. I mean, I love I think it's published today. I think it's Sunday paper, yeah. Okay, I love that review. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but, um, and uh, of course, I, I pulled up the the James Baldwin quote that I love because he talks about his own patriotism as well. He says, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He said, it is this idea that, Hey, this is my home. And because this is my home and I see injustice or I see, um, I mean, you know, just the inequities that exist here. I love her enough to stand up and to ask for something better. Mm -hmm. And not only ask for something better, shed blood for something better. Yeah. And that is patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think another element of patriotism that we were talking about was just simply existing. Not necessarily challenging the system or whatever, just mm-hmm. simply existing. And simply as existing as a minority and staying here and living here and raising our family here means you love this country. Because I'd say, yeah, like the past two years, this is, like I said in the review, like it's been complicated. Like mm-hmm. loving America has been kind of complicated for minorities, for people like us, for immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like after Donald Trump got elected, my parents who've lived... Uh, in America for, oh my God, like 30, oh my God, this is terrible, like 30 years mm-hmm. or something, uh, finally got their citizenship. Uh, because, you know, I don't know, maybe because they felt threatened, but they, they felt like they need to plant who they yeah. are in America even more than they have being just residents or people with green cards. Mm-hmm. That I think that is patriotism to move here, mm-hmm. you know, and be called an illegal or a bad hombre or something like that. That mm-hmm. is, a, fo- a radical form of patriotism mm-hmm. that exists within simply being here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yes, I thought it was brilliant. So, okay. So can, can, can I, can I posit the idea that <laughs> I don't know what you think about this, Okay, that Aaron Burr is Asian. Like he's not actually Asian. He, he's always played by black people. Like okay. generally, right. Okay. Uh, usually Eliza will be like, Asian or biracial, okay. right? Um, that that's a Philippa Sue uh, right. c- kind of originated that role, uh, and there's a- Asians kind of right. sprinkled throughout different types of Hamilton productions. But I think as a character, Aaron Burr is like a stereotypical Asian. Yeah, please elaborate. So I think I grew up being told by both kind of like the Asian uh, community mm-hmm. and white people. And I guess just, you know, people in general okay. to talk less and smile more. Like, don't you, I mean, don't you feel like Asians stereotypically talk less and smile more? Like, I, of all the ethnic groups, we're like the Aaron Burrist. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, we're the assimilators. Thing- we're the, we're the kind of, you know, we're, 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 we try to not stick our head out too much, but we also want the best for ourselves. And we're also as patriotic, but in a different way. Again, this is very stereotypically Asian American. First of all, I will not speak to stereotypical <laughs> Asian identities. Second of all, I mean, Aaron Bird to me was just so slithering. Like, he was fake. And so, I, I don't know. I would not insult Asian stereotypes even <laughs> to say that they are inauthentic. Because I thought that Aaron Burr as a character embodied 
inauthenticity. Yeah. That that's something that uh, it might be impossible to figure out. I don't, I didn't like the actor that much. He wasn't likable. You liked him. I thought he did. The, his song, his solo that he did, he killed. Wait for it. Yes. See, when I heard Leslie Odom do the original soundtrack, I loved Aaron Burr. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel like he was slithering. I feel like he was just doing the best that he could. Mm-hmm. Dude, I mean, look, we had this Black uh, Black Panther conversation about Killmonger versus T'Challa, right? right. I th- there's this thing where the person who is opposed to the hero, I find the most relatable. You know? Mm-hmm. Aaron Burr... Like, what... I can relate to someone who's trying to be a patriot, trying to, like, make the best for themselves, had two parents who are really high-achieving, right? That mm-hmm. This was a way for it. He wants to live up to the expectation of his of his parents, right. right? Hamilton doesn't really talk about his parents. He never talks about his parents. Well, he's an you orphan. Don't, you don't know anything about him. Uh, Angelica's like, where are you from? His you know, father your family? abandoned him, and then his mother, like, died. But I he doesn't that. talk about it. Yeah. Right? He's like, unimportant. Let, let's move on, Angelica. Right. right? Aaron Burr has a mission that has been imparted onto him, and he cares so deeply about it, he will never take any risk. You know, he will never stick his head out there because he doesn't want to get killed by King George III. But his motivations are so self-serving. Yeah, he he's a bit of a yeah, Machiavelli. It's, it's not, it's like, of course you don't achieve anything because it's all about, you know, just the perception of the thing rather than truly believing in resistance. Yeah. Believing in the perception of something is not a strong enough motivation to achieve anything, I believe. Yeah, I don't think that's Asian. Yeah, like that, that kind of like the superficial right. Machiavelli, that's not really an Asian thing, mm-hmm. you know, being kind of like a scheming, calculating, right. kind of moving up the political system, right. you know, whatever. We're, we're, we're not like slick political people. Right. Uh, the, the same way Aaron Burr maybe historically is. I would say maybe it's just the certain parts of emotional height in Wait For It, like that the tragedy of never being in the being being in the room where it happens right seeing other people shine and be the hero and never oh uh, never being able to be the hero i'll, I'll just can i just read the, right. this, uh, the thing where i wrote in the review okay so burr is again the, in my opinion the stand-in for the model minority he talks less and smiles more he blends this is a mix of reality and stereotype commonly applied to Asian Americans who are both more privileged and more invisible than the unmodel minorities with targets on their backs. Prototypical Asian American thinking stresses rising up through assimilation, not protest. It emphasizes hard work, pleasing others, and reducing personal risk. To have cast Burr with Asian Americans would would be to reinforce what is an already damaging assumption about the non-threatening status of Asians, yet... Portrayed typically by African-American actors, the character remains the most relatable to me. Wait for it, this musical's most emotionally complex song explains my plight as a minority better than any other song in recent pop culture. I'm not falling behind or running late, he tells us. I'm not standing still. I am lying in wait. Um, I we, we talked about Salieri, or I, I talked about mm-hmm. Salieri, who's the villain slash narrator in the and movie Amadeus. Mo- Amadeus. Yeah, Amadeus. I um, went back and when once you brought it up, I because I, I love that movie, and yeah. then I had forgotten it, and I went back and, and re, um, I don't, resurrected it, 
in order to kind of look at that dynamic of, because I, I feel like in our, our walk home, we talk about the power of indifference Mm -hmm. and how being someone who's obsessed with someone else's achievement is, um, debilitating and it's better to just be indifferent to what everybody else is doing and be focused on who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, jealousy is kind of Salieri and Burr's tragic mm-hmm. flaw, but I'm still going to maintain that they are more relatable than the heroes of their stories. Like, I mean, do you relate to Mozart? Do you re- relate to being a brilliant, precocious, you know, genius? I'm... Or do you relate to the guy, uh, someone who's who sees someone else have everything happen to them, and it's like, why was it never me, and feel this sense of unfairness? I I don't relate to Aaron Burr. I don't relate to Mozart. <laughs> um, I I just I pulled up this quote from W. E. B. Du Bois uh, talking about double consciousness, and I wasn't thinking about the actual it, the two-ness is not what I wanted to bring to light. I wanted to talk about this whole. Um, it talks about a dark body whose dog strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. And I definitely see myself as the dark body who is existing in this like perpetual intrinsic strength that is just kind of dragging it along. Hmm. Like, and so in that way, I don't relate to an Aaron Burr because I don't feel privileged enough to be jealous of someone else. I don't relate to a Mozart because I don't, I'm not bestowed with, um, this wonderful genius that allows me to effortly create something. I do relate to the mule who's been piled down with all sorts of things and is just kind of carrying and moving th- forward and doesn't have the space to really think about anybody else. Mm. Is there like a most relatable character in Hamilton then? Because Hamilton is great. He's brilliant. He's brash. He's bold. And, you know, people say he's like a Biggie Smalls archetype. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of tragically masculine, tragically, you know, driven by ego and ambition and kind of wild challenge to authority. That's not me. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I told you I have a people pleaser streak in me. Uh, I, I do have a talk less, smile more mm-hmm. aspect to me, um, despite being on a, doing a podcast <laughs> about race. But, but so, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Who, who is the most relatable character? Like, I don't think it's Hamilton. I, well, because Hamilton obviously is bestowed with the same, you know, genius as Mozart. I related to, um, first of all, Hamilton's wife, who's constantly being disregarded and always wanted to be loved and to be recognized, but in the end is kind of blessed with a long life and creates like an orphanage. She starts the first orphanage That's, in New York, the New York orphanage. I think the... I, I related to the silent suffering of being existing in a partnership with somebody who refuses to see you. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that that was incredibly relatable. I related to, um, yeah, I guess I would say I related to her. Eliza, yeah. Yeah. Because honestly, most of the musical, I was like, man, Eliza really just was a housewife. Look, in history, 
there's probably not much about her besides yes. the orphanage, right? And the musical, I think, really tries to give right. her songs, give like, what would she think? Right. You know, but I'm sure the historical record just does not have right. a lot of stuff about Eliza. Right. Who lives, who dies, who gets, who tells your story. Right. Is this line in Hamilton because it is based off of, man, it, it was like that play we saw, We Are Proud to Present. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but it's a, uh, it's this play about, a bunch of actors struggling to tell a fair story about a genocide that German people uh, uh, acted upon. Uh, what was that? In Namibia. Oh, uh, yeah. N- N- Namib- Namibia. Against the Herrero the people of Namibia. So if you want to radically kind of humanize the oppressed in a very historical event, how do you do that when there's like literally no, no historical document? about it. Um, and the again, Hamilton, tell the again, story. Hamilton offers all the answers. I just feel like Hamilton is this thing that you, you, if you, if you're struggling in life to do something like that, right. to like give voice to someone mm-hmm. who doesn't have a voice. Well, how do you give voice to someone who doesn't have a voice? Well, think about the radical reimagination that mm-hmm. takes place in Hamilton, right? I love the idea of radical reimagination. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important. Radical reimagination and radical positive imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I hope people in their. I mean, this might be too idealistic. Like, I just I just hope people go to their jobs and go to school and treat their family with this Hamilton mindset of I'm running out of time. Right? Mm-hmm. Why do you write like you're running out of time? Like, no, there's no room for complacency, no room for laziness, mm-hmm. no room for compromised humanity Mm -hmm. in this kind of short burst of life that we have you know and and we have to fight for something that's bigger than ourselves Mm -hmm. we just that's like the only way to live that's like the only way to live there's no other way to live fighting we kind of don't want to be like aaron (laughs) burr no um and don't do duels. Don't like shoot each other. First of all, <laughs> I was so annoyed and upset at that shit. People used to do that. That As was a, like the thing. And that's some. Um, that's why women need to be in more leadership roles because <laughs> women would be like, "No, I don't have time to waste my life because you need to pull out your dick and shoot somebody at random." What you say time. about mother? I will meet you at high noon, and you know, I would be <laughs> like, my honor. No, get your ass in the car and eat some damn Cheetos, <laughs> and I'm gonna take your ass home. Like I, yeah. uh God, that was so aggravating. Yeah, yeah. But you know, NRA. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Okay. Well, hopefully, you can podcast more often. A little I bit. know it's not that. Yeah, we can turn. I mean, you know, I have so much time. All I have is time. Oh, like, <laughs> yay, yay. Okay. Well, welcome back to uh, life. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to sanity. <laughs> Uh, and and having an empowered kind of existence, Ariel. Congratulations mm-hmm. on that. So you you did the Hamilton thing. Did I? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Good. Go team.